Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Mark 8, verses 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Uh, Father, we do thank you that we can be here as your church, as your people, freely able to worship you and gather around your word. Uh, May we never forget that wonderful privilege it is to have uh, access to it and, and the glorious truths of who you are. We ask that your, your spirit will be at work today, Lord, to, to shed knowledge, to shed understanding upon our hearts. Uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and, and by your spirit, Lord, empower us to live lives that are uh, in obedience, in honor of you. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Uh, I want to start with sharing with you um, a story of um, something that happened in our church a few years ago. There was a, a group of men in our church uh, who wanted to get fit. They really wanted to, to get healthy and fit, so they signed up for this three-month challenge amongst themselves, and it was known as the Six-Pack Challenge, okay? <laughs> Within 90 days, they trained hard at the gym, they stuck to strict diets with a hope that they would reach their goal of getting six-pack abs. Now, it does sound vain, I know, but the goal was really to become healthy and fit. That's what we were telling each other. Now. These men, they, they made sacrifices for it. Oh, man, they made sacrifices. There were text messages being sent around in group chats saying, man, I really want a burger. Oh, I'm so desperate for I'm so sick of, I'm so sick of eating salad. Oh, guys, I can't go out tonight. I've got a meal prep for the week. Yeah, these were the messages being sent out. Sacrifices were made. They were made on the food they wanted to eat. Sacrifices on their social life, even their time and energy that was uh, given to, to, to working out at the gym and training. Now, now <clears throat> most of them, Yes, most of them basically reached the goal after 90 days, and they felt the healthiest they have ever felt before, the fittest they've ever been. But if you ask them today, if you ask them today, someone's shaking their head, if you ask them today, how do they feel? Do you, do you still have a six-pack? <clears throat> they would probably say no. 
And almost immediately after they weighed in, guess what? The guys were back to eating whatever they wanted, stuffing their faces, not going to the gym anymore, not training anymore. I would say most of them felt the level of sacrifice they made, that diet, their social life, the time, it just wasn't worth keeping up. Now, it might sound like a trivial story, but there's, some, there's something there that's quite insightful, don't you think? Isn't it generally true that we'll all make sacrifices for the things we believe are worthwhile and important in our lives? And I mean, it's not hard to find the stories out there of the entrepreneur or the celebrity who will sacrifice long hours at the expense of their family to find success. Times when people have had to, to couch surf and live off pennies and rice and beans and all that stuff so they can achieve their dreams. Uh, and I'm so sure that you know what that's like to make sacrifices for the things in your life, right? You do it for your uni degree, where you sacrifice sleep to pump out that assignment. You do it for your career or, or side hustle, when you sacrifice your social life or time with your family. You do it for your loved ones, where your family is more important than your job, and you say no to the promotion, because you want to spend more quality time with the people around you that matters. You make sacrifices. You see, as humans, we make sacrifices for the things we believe are valuable, right? You can probably think of things in your life right now where that's true. But let me ask you today, would that be true too of the way you see and value Jesus? Is he of a, the highest treasure and worth to you? Does he have the place of prominence in your life that he's worth making sacrifices for? Today's passage uh, is the last in our series, right, of Mark chapter 1 to 8. And it's so important because it confronts us with this very question that we all have to ask ourselves. Who is this man? And if we know who this man is, will we follow him? What will it even look like to follow him? Let's recap a little bit before we get into what we read today. So far in the first seven chapters, we've learned a lot about who Jesus is and what he came to do. We've seen him heal a paralytic, heal a bleeding woman, cast out demons from the demon-possessed. We've seen him teach, share parables, share wisdom about the scriptures and the law, like, like what the Sabbath means. We've seen him have control over nature when he stilled a storm with a word, when he, uh, when he fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and some fish, when he, when he flexed his power over death even and brought a little girl back to life. Last week, we saw him in, in, chapter, in the first part of chapter 8 restore sight to a blind man. Who is this Jesus figure? Is he just a teacher? A miracle worker? Is he, some of the people during the time were, were calling him a troublemaker, starting a coup against the religious council. As we unpack this passage today, I'm going to structure this, 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 this talk with a series of questions we all need to ask too. Who do we say Jesus is? What did this Jesus come to do, and what will it mean to follow him? All right, simple. Let's get into it. Who do we say Jesus is? Let's read verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Who is this man, right? That's what we've titled this series. Now, Jesus is asking this very question. He wants to know who the people think he is. And it's quite interesting, the responses, right? We've got John the Baptist. Who was he? He was a guy who, who, who baptized people in the Jordan River. He was beheaded at this point by King Herod in this point in the story. So someone's saying, this is John the Baptist come back to life. They mustn't have met Jesus back when he was younger, right? They say he's John the Baptist. Others say he's Elijah. The, if you don't know, Elijah is a prophet. You can read about him in the Old Testament, in the book of 1 Kings. And the record in the Bible says that he was taken up to heaven. He didn't physically die. So they're saying that uh, Elijah, who was, who was prophesied to come back and herald in the coming of God's kingdom, this is Elijah before us. So it's not surprising they think it's Elijah. Others see him as a prophet. 
sent by God. The prophets were the, the people that God uh, called to, to, be their, uh, to be his mouthpiece, to, to share his word with people. Others say he's a prophet. If you talk to your, uh, a Muslim friend and ask them what they think of Jesus, that's, what that, that's the answer you'll get. He was just a, a prophet, one of many prophets that spoke God's words. Now, those answers are, are, are pretty legit, aren't they? John the Baptist, Elijah, prophet. That's impressive. We should be impressed by that. Those are Hall of Famers, right? Like being named alongside uh, Jordan and Larry Bird and Shaquille O'Neal, right? If you're in the basketball world, I think they're Hall of Famers. But uh, as impressive as it might seem, as impressive as that is, it's not actually who Jesus is. Verse 29, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Imagine being asked that question by Jesus face to face. Wow, I'd get anxious. I'd, I'd be super, is this a trick question? Am I meant to say like, your name? Uh, you're Jesus? Uh, wait, are you not? Have I got your name wrong this whole time? It's so awkward, right? The disciples, they've had this problem here where they, they actually aren't seeing Jesus. Like, it's quite disappointing so far in the narrative, All right? They call him teacher at times. Yes, great. A leader figure in their lives, but they're often unaware of his power, what he truly comes to do. So when we read what Peter says, we should give him a standing ovation, okay? Are you ready? In verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Round of applause, right? Yes, Peter, you, you got it, right? The Messiah, he's the Messiah. And that term Messiah was used in the Old Testament for God's anointed one, anointed king. God's king that will come and rule and reign. And for centuries, it was prophesied that God would send his Messiah, his king, to come and save his people, to usher in God's kingdom in the world and make everything right. And Peter is saying, Jesus, you are that messianic king. And so if you hear your friends talk about Jesus Christ, that idea of Christ means Messiah, means the anointed king. Jesus is king. And, and, and Mark, who's writing this, has turned, uh, turned on his location services, hasn't he? He told us where he is. He, in verse 27, it says they're in Caesarea Philippi. Now, that's a little interesting uh, tidbit of information. It's a city named in honor of Caesar Augustus, the emperor the king of Rome. Peter's saying something quite powerful here, isn't he, in Caesarea Philippi. Caesar, Caesar isn't king. Jesus is king. He's the true king. And so in verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. I mean, if you go around now saying this, there's going to be a target on his back. He'll have to go into hiding. People say that he's starting a political uprising, insurgents, there's a new king in town, his name is Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He's the king. So Jesus warns him not to tell anyone about him. But the next question we have to ask, what has this king come to do? So verse 31, if you're following along, it says this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus uses this title for himself, the Son of Man. And he's alluding uh, to the title given to the, the messianic figure in Daniel's vision. I've got it, Daniel chapter 7 on the screen. Uh, from verse 13, uh, in my vision, Daniel's having a vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is what the people were waiting for, the Son of Man, the Messiah, establishing a new kingdom that will reign forever with all authority and power and glory. And we've already seen hints of that, haven't we, in Jesus, in the first seven chapters? Authority over sickness, 
authority over nature, authority over the spirits, authority even over death. And Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, he says this very unexpected thing, doesn't he? He says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and in three days rise again. What are you saying, Jesus? That's not the Messiah that's been prophesied. Uh, prophesied about? I mean, Peter, I would feel super uncomfortable with that. All my life I've been taught about the Messiah who's going to come and reign and, and, and usher in this new kingdom and be this powerful ruler. And so verse 32, he, sp- he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, I can imagine, Jesus, don't say such foolish things. You're the, you're the long-awaited king. You're the one who's going to conquer the Roman Empire. And you're going to restore Israel to glory. You're going to establish God's kingdom forever. That's, that's what I've been taught all my life. You see, Peter has this version of the Messiah that he was hoping for. One that would fulfill everything that he's expected and dreamt of in terms of the king. The king that will come and crush the enemy, overthrow the empire, bring peace to the people. Why else? Why else has Peter given up his social life, his fishing career, his family even, to go and follow this man, Jesus? He was banking on Jesus being the one that fulfills what he had in mind for the Messiah. So Peter pulls Jesus aside. I can imagine, have you lost your mind, Jesus? You're the king. You, you can't, you, you're you're, you're, you're going to con- come and conquer, aren't you? That's what you're here for. What's this nonsense about suffering and dying? That sounds weak, man. You see, what are we discovering Remember last week, what Jesus did. He he was with the blind man. And what happened when he healed him, it took two goes. The first go, he only had partial sight. The blind man looked around and he saw people walking around like trees. Not quite human, more like silhouettes, trees walking around. And you see that miracle of restoring sight gives us the context, really, of what's going on here with Peter. Hallelujah, Peter recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Hooray, right? But wait. Peter still can't see clearly the whole picture. He's still partially blinded to who Jesus truly is. Peter wants the king to come and crush the enemy. And Jesus says the king has come and he will be crushed at the hands of his very own people. How does Jesus respond to Peter trying to rebuke him? Verse 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. This is public, right? Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds really harsh. I mean, a bit excessive. Just escalated really quickly. Sure, Peter, you've got it wrong. You're partially blind to who Jesus is, but going as far to call him Satan? Calling him the devil? Man, that sounds really mean, Jesus. Come on now. Uh, Peter's, you know, Jesus trying to make his point really clear. What Peter wants of the king is precisely the things Satan tempted Jesus earlier with as well. If you go back to Mark chapter 1, you'll read about how Jesus went into the wilderness and what happened? He was tempted by Satan. What were the things that Satan tempted him with? I've got, this, I've, I've got the Luke account for us because it's a bit more detailed. Luke chapter 4 on the screen here. This was the third temptation, I think. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. 
Satan has tempted Jesus to have authority over all the kingdoms. Satan tells Jesus, you can be king of the world. You can rule and reign with power. If you worship Satan, you can have it all. You see, there's this temptation that Jesus recognizes is of Satan. That desire for worldly power and dominion, isn't that what Peter wants of the Messiah? Jesus said, no, that's not actually what God intended. God's not concerned with, with that. We, we, we've seen throughout history men strive for it, for power and status and success, to be crowned kings and emperors and rulers. God's concern, though, is for his king to come and to do what? To suffer, to die, and to rise again. You see, for this king, for Jesus, the crown comes with the cross. Let me say that again. The crown comes with the cross. Victory comes through defeat. Power is shown in weakness. The Messiah must suffer. And while the Jews over the years were so focused on a warrior, a political, messianic king to come and save them, they forget that there are places in the scriptures where the king that is to come will suffer. I don't have it on the screen, but in, in Psalm 22, 2020, Psalm 22, it talks about how the psalmist says, Cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the Messiah speaking. In Zechariah 9, it talks about how the king will come not on chariots, on horses, but on a donkey. In Zechariah chapter 12 as well, they will look upon this king as the one they have pierced. And in Isaiah 53, many of us know this passage, the servant of God who comes to save will suffer. He will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities. To bring us peace, he will be punished. To bring us healing, he'll be wounded. You see, this is the nature of our Christ, our Savior, our King. The King comes to suffer. And it tells us something quite profound about God's character, doesn't it? And, and, what, and the way of our world. Isn't it so true that our nature as humans is to preoccupy ourselves with the ways of this world? Well, we're taught from a young age that we are the center of the universe to pursue your heart's desires, to chase after success, status, security, or whatever else brings you fulfillment. Have we ever considered that that self-centered view is precisely what Satan wanted Jesus to give himself over to? Peter wants to see a king that will rule and reign, right? Jesus says that those things are exactly what Satan wants our eyes to be fixed on, to be tempted by power and pride and prestige. The very things our first parents, Adam and Eve, were offered to, offered by Satan. And isn't that how the Bible describes our humanity? Isn't that, isn't that so in line, in tune with the world around us? The world is broken, and sin is evident amongst the human race. And we concern and consume ourselves with the ways of the world. And we go completely in the opposite direction of what God wants of us. Jesus is harsh, but he needs to say to Peter, don't be consumed by the culture and the world around us, and what Satan wants us to think about ruling and reigning in this world. God's plan for his anointed king was that the king would come to suffer and to die. To receive the crown requires the cross. There is no alternative. And the word to notice here in Mark chapter 8, little keyword, he must suffer. He must die. Why? Because while the Roman Empire might seem like the enemy in Peter's time, while they might feel like the opposition, the kings of the world that bring pain and destruction to people, King Jesus doesn't come to topple governments. 
taking evil, tyrannical kings off their throne, as bad as those enemies might seem, he comes to defeat an even greater enemy that is far more sinister. He comes to defeat the enemy of sin and death itself. We need a savior to save us from our sin, the sin in our hearts. We need a savior who's going to defeat death, the very fate we all have to face when sin rules our hearts. You see, when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't stay dead, does he? He rises three days later to show us that sin has been dealt with. Death is no more. For Jesus, for Jesus to receive the crown, the rightful title of king and Messiah, it comes. It must come with the cross. He must defeat the death that you and I deserve so you and I can be saved. You see, this is what Peter needs to understand. This is what we need to understand and see. So let me ask you something. Because the answer to this question is going to shape how you respond to Jesus. If Jesus asked you the same question, what would your answer be? If he asked you today, who do you say I am? What do you think I've come to do? How would you answer that? You see, I've been around the block for a while, right? I've been a Christian for 20 years now in different churches. And I've asked this question to people outside of church as well. Who do they think Jesus is? And it's so fascinating Fascinating because uh, often they'll say something like, well, the way I see Jesus is, and then, all the, and then I'm hearing this version of Jesus, and it's often not the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of history. Now, you might have been in that situation before, at some point said that. Um, maybe the way I see Jesus is, is that he really cares about me and he wants what's best for me. What's best for me? Well, my security. I mean, buying a house, getting that job, you know, finding love in marriage, having having." Having passive income, I think that's what God, you know, Jesus wants of me. He doesn't want me to ever worry ever again because he loves me and cares for me. And we start seeing this version of Jesus, the Jesus of security, the Jesus of success. Or I see Jesus as someone who really cares about justice. He cares for the poor, the weak, the vulnerable. He cares about equality and climate change and animals as well. The world is messed up. Jesus comes to clean up. I like that social justice version of Jesus. That's, that's the Jesus I want to follow. Or perhaps the way you see Jesus is that he teaches you how to be a really good person, really good morals, right? how to be good citizens, how to be considerate of others, how to turn the other cheek, how to not judge a book by its cover, how to be a good, obedient boy or girl, essentially a better version of yourself. That's the Jesus I believe, and that's the one I want to follow. But can you see what we've done when we do that? We, we've conjured up a version of Jesus that we like, that suits our lifestyle, that doesn't inconvenience us too much and makes us feel generally good. And I can see why people come to those conclusions. Because in many senses, Jesus may encompass many of those traits. Yes, he does. But that's not the king that Jesus came to be. He is the king who saw you and me in our sin, in our brokenness, and by his grace chose to die for us. We can't fathom this king until we start seeing our own need for him. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't see sin as a problem. The bigger problem in my life is my bank account right now. The bigger problem in my life is I don't have that dream job yet. I I can't buy a house because the housing market is ridiculous. The bigger problem right now in my life is I'm lonely and I need love. And I get it. I get all those difficult circumstances. I don't want to downplay any of them. But when we take a deeper look, when we see the the anxiety of our hearts, why do we feel so discontent? Why is there a disconnect with having lots of material possessions yet still not finding happiness? Why is there still selfishness and pride and greed and shame and rising levels of loneliness and anxiety in a world that is so advanced and all about progress? 
that God sees our greatest need, and it's to be rescued from the sin in our hearts. You see, when we start with that greater, deeper need, we can start to see Jesus, Jesus for who he truly is and what he came to do. When we truly understand that, it will change everything. It will change how you live if you truly understand the one you follow. In the words of Kevin DeYoung, he's a U.S. pastor and author, he says this, if we don't understand his messiahship, we won't understand our discipleship. And that's precisely what Jesus wants to address next. If he is king, what will it look like to be his disciple? What will it look like to call yourself a Christian to follow him? Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The temptation here is to think that deny myself is like what Billy said earlier, to be a monk, to be aesthetic, you know, to, that aesthetic life, like where no pleasures, no, um, no, no materialistic possessions, deny yourself of everything. Go live in the mountains with nothing. But Jesus isn't saying that. The call is to turn from living for yourself and to now live for Jesus. It's what we as Christians call repentance and then obedience. If we truly call him Messiah and King, then our loyalty and our allegiance and our obedience isn't to self. We're not the king over our life anymore. Once I've acknowledged Jesus as the ruler, as my king, who gets the crown? Who gets to reign over my life? It's not me. I deny myself. It's Christ that gets to sit on the throne. And so when he, uh, he says, take up your cross, there's a picture there of the Roman cross, right? The same that we know Jesus died upon. The cross meant death. The crowd knows that. They need to know, too, how serious it is. The disciples need to know how serious it is to follow him. You may lose everything even your very life, in a world for them where the Roman emperors burnt Christians at the stake, the call to discipleship is a serious one. Jesus is essentially saying this, come follow me to a life that will involve suffering and death. Jesus is saying, put to death the life you were once living. Live for God now. Live a life that will follow his will. Live a life that seeks to glorify his name. Bring it all under his kingship and reign. Follow the footsteps of the crucified king. Take up your cross. And as you do, you'll realize that it will go against the grain of culture. In some places around the world, you will face death or prison for being a Christian. In our case, in, our, in, our, in the comfortable West, you'll experience people, at least, who will reject you. You'll find yourself in social contexts where you might not fit in. You may not get approval or acceptance from people you might want it from your colleagues at work, your friends, even your family. Your life isn't going to look like the rest of the people around you because you live for someone and something greater. You live for King Jesus. That's what it looks like to take up your cross. And Jesus drives this point home from verse 35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's be clear. Before God, you can't have both. Try and you'll fail miserably. Something has got to give. Right? We know making sacrifices, we do make sacrifices for things that we believe are valuable. And you can follow in the footsteps of someone like Elon Musk, and I've shared this before, who works 80 to 100 hours a week. Good for him. But he's left a trail of dead bodies behind him, as in dead bodies like broken relationships, divorces, and neglected family. Something's got to give. You can't have it all. 
gain the world, Jesus says, at what cost? What good is it if you reach the top of your career? You gain the approval of your parents and friends and, 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 and everyone admires you. What good is it if you gain all the riches and status and achievements at the sacrifice of your soul and you fix, you've forsaken Jesus? You see, the reality is those things will all fade away. Those things will all be but a moment, a drop in the timeline of eternity. None of them last. And some of the guys here know, as Billy mentioned earlier, cryptocurrency this last week. Wow, it crashed like crazy. It can't give you any guarantees. Invest in Jesus. That's what one of the guys said to me. <laughs> and he invests in cryptocurrency too. But the last part of that passage <laughs> is chilling, right? It's, it's chilling, the last part. You might make sacrifices through your life, Get the six-pack abs, be financially independent, retire early, gain the world while rejecting Jesus. And if that is you, be prepared to stand before God and be rejected by him. It sounds harsh, but it's reasonable, isn't it? I mean, shouldn't the infinite, glorious, holy, perfect God have standards? Should he compromise for you and for me? What, would you compromise for yourself? Uh, if I'm married to Heidi, right? If I was married to Heidi and I went out with the boys, took off my wedding ring, acted like I wasn't married because I was ashamed of Heidi, do you think Heidi should let me home? Do you think Heidi should accept me? Why would she? She has standards. We all have, we, if, you're ashamed, if, you're, that sounds, um, if you're ashamed of standing for Jesus in the world, Jesus will not stand for you when you're brought before God. The call here is to live unashamedly for Jesus. Even in times when your very own family or friends might reject you because you chose to get baptized. A question some of our members are thinking about right now. You chose to commit to serving your church. You chose to live for Jesus, for the sake of Jesus, for the gospel. And as difficult as that potential rejection sounds, guess what? You'll find acceptance and the warm embrace of your Heavenly Father as your welcome to See, the reality is many of us aren't really all for Jesus, are we? We all do want a foot in both worlds. We all want to find the loophole. We want everything our heart desires in this world now, and we want what Jesus offers in the world to come. And you see, this is what I'm concerned about, is that some of us might take the title of Christian without contemplating seriously what it means to take up our cross. You see, so often many of us come to Jesus and the cross of Christ without counting the cost. We'll say, yes, the cross of Christ that's how I'll be saved. Yes, amen, hallelujah. 100%. It's the way to salvation. But do you realize, Christian, that the cross is also the way of life? Yes, it's the way of salvation, but it's also the way of life. I've got a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a pastor in Germany during the, the Nazi regime, and he, he was killed by the Nazis, and it's really sad. But his, in one of his books, he writes this, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ, the beginning of our relationship with Jesus. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. There is a cost to being a Christian. There will be a life where you will struggle and you'll have to daily die to self. That's the cross that you and I take up. To be a Christian should involve deep consideration. It's not easy. It will not give you everything your heart desires today. It will be a long journey, but it will be worth it. It will be worth it because the truth is at the cross you'll actually find freedom. I get what, what people think. People have said to me, Mikey, if I make sacrifices for Jesus, 
and the gospel, it means living a life that sounds so restrictive and burdensome. But I would beg to differ. It's actually when we live for the approval and expectations of the world around us that we're never truly free. When we sacrifice for Christ, there's actually freedom and joy to be had because we serve an even greater king, the Messiah, the one who who does want what's best for us, not just in this life, but for the next as well. You see, you might be hearing all this for the first time, and this sounds really intense to you. It, It does sound intense. It sounds radical. But you know what? This is actually what ordinary faith looks like when you follow a crucified king, laying down our very lives for the sake of him in the gospel. I want us to transform the way we think about discipleship. It's not about being a super Christian and radical Christian. It's actually living the ordinary Christian life. Earlier, I commented that it's, it's, it's easy, isn't it, to make sacrifices in our lives for the things that we love and believe are valuable. Why would we make, why would, why would, why are sacrifices joyful though? It's hard. Sacrifices are hard. And too often that means in our pursuit for the things of our hearts, um, we, we, we do the things and, and we, uh, we, we actually put Jesus on the, on the back burner. He gets the dregs. The Sunday mornings at church, possibly, if it's convenient, we try to fit in prayer here and there because we're making sacrifices for the things we desire. We want God to fit within our schedule and our lifestyle. And I, I want us to really challenge ourselves to think about this. How do we see Jesus? What are we saying about the Messiah when we live a life where Jesus isn't the one we're making sacrifices for? Aren't we saying that he's less valuable and less important than the other things that we do make sacrifices for? You know, the goal today, I'm not here to make you feel guilty about it. I'm not here to make you do anything out of obligation. No, the goal for us is to consider what is it that rules our hearts? Who deserves to be on the throne reigning over our lives? Do you truly believe the joy and freedom that you have in Jesus? And that when you do sacrifice for him, You do it because he's worth it. Maybe it's time for us to reorder our loves, reorder our priorities. Uh, Let's be concrete. Let's ask ourselves, how how might all that I have, how might uh, all that God has given me, my time, my money, my opportunities, my job, my relationships, how can they be used and lived out in honor of my king, the one who has my heart? How can I live out my life with what I have in order to advance the gospel in this world? Am I making sacrifices for Jesus? I do want to go as far as saying that some of us here might be really considering where God is leading you. God might already be nudging you to go into full-time ministry, to be a missionary here or overseas in a full-time capacity. It might mean you give up your career, what you've worked so long for, studied long hours getting a degree for. Yes, it might seem like a sacrifice giving up those things, but what are you truly losing? And what are you actually gaining? We've got to stop thinking it's giving up giving these things up when there's actually so much to gain in Jesus. When we believe that it's good, when we actually know who Jesus is, like we believe the greatness of who he is, sacrifice doesn't sound so hard anymore. Now I want us to remember though in saying all this, it's only possible if you truly believe that he is your Messiah. Yes, you may claim Jesus has saved you, but does your life reflect that he rules you? You can't, we can't claim his cross and reject his crown either. There is no in-between. We can't remain indifferent to Jesus. We can't remain nonchalant towards him. You can't sit on the fence. You're in Christ or you're not in Christ. But let me tell you, 
if you're still working this out, if you're not a Christian here today, let me tell you, Jesus is so worth it. The King has come. He died. He was raised again. In Him, you have your sins forgiven. There is eternal life that awaits, a relationship restored with God, the God of the universe. In His presence, there is joy and peace and freedom and security and success and love and all the things that your heart is longing for. We get to have that for eternity in Him. But if you are new to it all and you're still figuring this out, I do want you to keep exploring that, investigating who this Jesus is. And if you are ready, man, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our leaders and anyone on the stage here. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love to share with you what it looks like to follow Jesus. But when we truly understand this King, we'll all, or you, like us, will hopefully grasp this truth. There is no sacrifice too great for the sake of the gospel. I want to finish with a couple of stories of real people that I've heard. Uh, to inspire encourage you read about. The first one is, is a story of someone who lived in the 1800s. His name is C.T. Studd. You might have heard of him, Charles. He was born into a wealthy family back in the 1800s. Brilliant cricket player. He played for England um, in one of the first Ashes tournament against Australia before he was even called the Ashes. Right? I think he was 16 years old. He got accepted into Cambridge and studied there. He had a promising future, wealth, opportunities, fame. But at 18 years old, he met Jesus. And inst instead of pursuing those things as good as they are, he decided with his wife to spend his years sharing Jesus in places like China and India. And then at the ripe age of 50 years old, he went to Africa and spent the last 20 years of his life proclaiming the gospel to those who have never heard of Jesus. When I read stories like that, I'm like, wow, this guy is so inspiring. He, he sees the bigger vision to his life. There's something greater to live for. Maybe that's not relatable to you because he's some guy that lived a couple hundred years ago. Let me tell you about my friend Janice then. Janice was a huge influence in my life, in my early 20s. She, lives, she lived in Taiwan, came from a middle-class family, was given the opportunity to study pharmacy in the US. She returned after she studied there with her degree, and she would have had no problem securing a job in, in Taipei, the big city. But as a Christian, she looked at her home country, and she realized there are so many people still who don't know Jesus. So she decided not to pursue her career, and she went to Bible college. And with her best friend, Lily, they planted a church in a little rural town in Taiwan's countryside, the town where uh, one of our very own members, Roy, grew up. She labored there for over 25 years, serving a church that still, to this day, is no bigger than 40, maybe 50 people at its most on a, any given Sunday. Yet God used her to bless hundreds and hundreds of people in that town and beyond. People like me, who somehow found my way to her church and was blessed by her. I got to see her resilience and her perseverance. I was inspired to plant a church in Brisbane, in my own hometown. And Janice was an ordinary woman who had faith in an extraordinary Messiah. You know, I, I met her when she was in her 50s or 60s, and, and a few years ago she passed away. But I'm confident she's at home with our King, Jesus, because she chose to live a cross-centered life and followed him. But maybe that is still too distant for you to be relatable. Let me share with you another story. I'm going to change his name. His name is, let's call him Jacob. Uh, I met him a few years back. And I heard the story from a friend of a, you know, so he's a friend. Of a friend. He goes to a church interstate right, uh, in another city. He's in his 20s. He became a Christian a few years ago. And when he did, he had to keep it a secret from his parents because he knew his parents wouldn't approve of it. He went to church in secret for two years before he told them. And when he did tell them, eventually, 
They flipped out. They called him crazy, trying to stop him from going to church, but he kept on going. He told them that he wanted to get baptized, and they threatened to disown him. But he went ahead and got baptized anyway. Recently, he decided he wanted to consider full-time gospel ministry. It got him kicked out of home. And while he wants to honor his parents, he has a king that calls him to take up his cross and to follow him. You know, that, that might sound radical to you, but Jacob simply is living out his faith with the life that God gave him. It is sad that his parents didn't show up to his baptism. But you know what? His sister did. His sister actually recorded the whole thing on video and his testimony. And guess what? Two months after that, his baptism, he sat down with his parents. And in patience and in gentleness, he shared his testimony to them. He translated his testimony to them even the parts where his parents opposed his faith. And he, they watched him get baptized on video. And since then, he even has had the opportunity to read the Bible with his mom. And praise the Lord. Maybe you can't relate to any of these stories. Maybe you're more like me then. Well, you find being a Christian is really hard. And you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth making those sacrifices? And maybe there are days where, like me, you need to come back to the cross and realize how great you and I have been forgiven and see the worth of Christ and see that he is worth it. Because, friends, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of love, of mercy, and of grace. We are undeserving of his forgiveness. But he gives up his life for us anyway. Friends, who do you say Jesus is? What will it look like for you to follow him? Let me pray. And as I pray, I hope you'll join me in praying for Jesus to be our King and the one we follow, even when it's hard even when we have to make sacrifices, because we know he is the king that's worth it. Let's pray. Father, give us sight to see Jesus for who he truly is, the Messiah, the King, our Savior. Give us awareness of our deepest need. We are guilty of sin. We are deserving of death. Help us to turn to and trust Jesus to see it is in Christ alone that hope is found. He is the one who sacrifices his life to bring us forgiveness, that he was raised from the dead to secure eternal life, that he is our saviour king who deserves the rightful place on the throne. May that truth resonate so deeply in our hearts, Lord, and may it overflow, overflow to how we live so that our lives will be shaped by the cross of Christ and that we'll live lives Help us to live lives that are unashamed of our King Jesus. We pray this in his majestic name. Amen.